kids, you are dismissed. Good afternoon. We are, we are at the, the end of this series that we've been in on stewarding privilege, and I'm really excited because I can't think of a better text for us to be in than the one we're going to be in today. We've been talking a lot about what does it mean uh, as, a, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, to steward privilege. We've been able to establish throughout the scriptures that privilege is indeed a real thing. We see it throughout the Bible. We see God calling us not to apologize for privilege. We, we see him not uh, come, telling us to come up with ways to deny privilege, but how do we steward it for those who don't have it to God's glory? And so that, that's been the theme for the last month and a half as we've been talking through what does it mean to steward what God's given us? What does it mean to steward our lives, steward our family, steward our resources? And today we're going to talk about what does it mean to steward the ways in which we're a neighbor? What does it actually mean for us? So when, I, when you think about that, I want you to think about where you live right now. Just think about where you live, regardless of whether you buy, whether you rent. How important is being a good neighbor to you? When you think about the idea of being a neighbor, maybe you move into a new community, you move into a new neighborhood, and you, you kind of gauge the values of those in the neighborhood, and you can see how people care for their homes. Well, what do you begin to think about? You know, what does it mean to be a good neighbor? Does that even cross your mind? It, for, for some people, it doesn't, and, and there, there are issues that, that fall there. We're going to look at that in a minute, but gen, usually, generally, when we move to a place, we're thinking about, okay, what does it mean to be a neighbor here? How important is it for other people to be a good neighbor to you? I would think for a lot of us, it's pretty important. You think through uh, what it means to, to have neighbors that actually care uh, about their own homes, right? Usually, for, for a lot of us, when we think about neighboring, being a good neighbor means not being a nuisance to my neighbor. Usually, being a good neighbor is, I don't want to be a nuisance. In other words, I don't want uh, my lawn to be an eyesore. I don't want them to think that I don't care about the values of the homes around me. I, I want to make sure that I'm not uh, having uh, ridiculous conversations at ungodly hours that are really loud so that they, the whole neighborhood hears it. I want to make sure that my children are well cared for so that they're not having to keep all of my children in check all the time. All that pressure, all those things that you think about when it's time to be a good neighbor. At the end of the day... Being a good neighbor simply means this. I want to make sure that I'm, that I'm not a nuisance, and I want to make sure that I can give very minimal help if needed. Minimal help, right? Nothing that requires too much investment on my part. So if it means that uh, you need me to come out and help shovel, I'll help shovel. Maybe not too much here in Atlanta, but I'm from Detroit, so you, you know how to use that shovel. Uh, maybe it's, you know, hey, they, they need some help with the lawn, or maybe I need to borrow a lawnmower. They need to borrow a lawnmower. I can, I, they can, I, I can give them the lawnmower. It's, it's minimal investment on my part. Being a neighbor is simply this. I just, I don't want to be a nuisance to you, and, and if minimal help that you need from me, I'm willing to provide that. That's, and in most neighborhoods, that's the idea of being a good neighbor. And, and so we, we, we put things in place to ensure that those minimal things are, are set, right? Those expectations are in place. I remember when uh, we bought first house up in Alaska. And I remember, you know, reading through the, the contracts and reading through the covenants for the neighborhood. And uh, we had, I don't know, it was about an acre and you have a lot of trees. And, and uh, one of the things was like you have to have X, a certain percentage of trees on your property. You can't cut too many trees down. Like that, they 
all of the neighbors had that expectation that a certain amount of green space would be preserved. So to cut down more than that percentage would actually be to be a good, to be a bad neighbor. And so there's always these expectations here. That's why we have neighborhood watches. That's why we have homeowners associations, because we, we've all kind of set up these rules. This is what it means to be a neighbor. I, uh, I found a few examples of really bad neighbors and I, 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 I'm asking you not to say amen if this is you, uh, but if it is, we will pray for you as well. Uh, here's one. There, in, many, in many ways, if you're not a good neighbor, or what happens when, when you have someone that's not a good neighbor? Do we just sit? I mean, it depends. Sometimes we just sit back and we uh, talk about all the ways they're not a good neighbor. Right? We come up with a lot of flowery commentary about why they're not really good neighbors. Uh, sometimes, if, we're, if you know, communication is, is, is the name of the game, a good neighbor should be someone that is communicative and you can go and talk to them. And so sometimes we'll come and we'll bring our grievances to our neighbor. And so I have a, a few examples of grievances that have been aired out uh, to neighbors uh, in the form of letters left on their door. Uh, here's one. Dear neighbor... Your car sound system is amazing. It is so loud and the bass is so rocking that it actually shakes all of the apartment buildings in the complex. Awesome. This is exceptionally rad when you pull up at 3.30 in the morning and wake up the entire community. Wicked awesome. We are all very impressed with your super cool sound system. Don't even think about turning it down when you're running up to the buildings you share with hundreds of other people. Signed, your envious neighbors. Here's another example. Uh, here's a letter. This was one that was put right on this person's apartment door. Please stop fighting, in all caps. Everyone can hear you. Everyone knows your personal business, and I am embarrassed for you. Some of us need to work in the morning and cannot listen to you bicker every night. So please stop arguing. Keep it down. Go fight in your car or go break up already. <laughs> here's the real passive-aggressive. Heart the building. <laughs> Another example, uh, this one actually really got me laughing. Hey, did you guys move? Your Wi-Fi isn't working anymore. I hope it's, and then it's is crossed out. I hope you're okay. X's and O's, Nick. <laughs> Another one, dear homeowner, we, your neighbors, cannot help but notice the obscene amount of dandelions on your lawn. Do you not realize how terrible it looks? Do you not realize the effect this has on community pride, not to mention community values? A few dandelions, sure, but your lawn is an absolute embarrassment. You are screaming, I don't care about how my property looks with every passing day. We all agree that your lawn is currently the absolute worst lawn on the block, and we urge you to seriously evaluate your lawn care priorities. Signed, your deeply disappointed neighbors. Here's another one. This one is, is, uh, this one is my favorite. Super passive aggressive. Tell me if you can hear the tone here. Hey, sillies. I noticed you guys keep forgetting to pick up your dog's poopies, so I took it upon myself to bring some baggies. I assumed you're all out because why else would you not clean up after your dogs? Oh, I also helped out by dropping all the said poop conveniently in front of your door for easier cleanup. You're welcome. <laughs> now, it's funny, but at the end of the day, we would all agree that neighboring matters. Anywhere you live, anywhere you go, it's, you need to understand and maybe read the context of where you are to go, okay, what does it mean to be a neighbor here, right? And then the expectation therein is that you're going to uphold those values, uphold what it, whatever those rules are, whether they're expressed or whether they're tacit, we know that those are things that are expected of us. And so we want to be a good 
neighbor. It's important that we don't live our lives as if they're only about us. It's important that we live our lives uh, as if they're about more than just us. You know, I remember the, there's a quote from old uh, Archbishop uh, of uh, uh, William Temple, the, the, the former Archbishop, and he said, uh, the church is the organization, the only organization that is organized for the benefit of its non-members. And, and there's a lot of truth in that when you think about what does it mean for me to steward what it means to be a neighbor, not just for my house. I'm not just moving in here so that I can have the things that I want here at my house. What does it mean to actually be giving my life away as a neighbor? And so this is something that we all get even outside of being a Christian or outside of going to church. People all over the world have ideas of what it means to be a neighbor. And yet, our idea of being a neighbor does not go far enough. Our idea of being a neighbor is actually, uh, it's, it's a pretty weak and truncated version of neighboring when you compare that to the way Jesus describes neighboring. When you compare that to the way God describes neighboring. And so we're going to look at a text here that's going to show that uh, when, we, when we think about stewarding privilege, Jesus shows us how important neighboring is, not just, not just to your neighbors, how important neighboring is to your relationship with God. The way that he ties our ability and, and the way that we steward this, the way that we neighbor each other is tied to our entrance into the kingdom of God. So it's, it's, it's beyond just a nice little option or uh, another thing that we can do in addition to being a Christian. This is actually a part of what it means to love God. We're going to read this text. This is a very, very well-known parable. It's, it's uh, out of all four Gospels. It only appears here in Luke. And it's interesting because you, you think about Luke. Luke, is, uh, he, Luke was a doctor. He, he was not one of the original disciples. He became a believer uh, later, and he followed them all over. You see so many uh, ways in which he's recording very specific things about Jesus because he wants to convince the listeners, the people who are reading his letter, he wants to convince them that the thing, things that they had heard about, that they were actually true. And so if you think about Luke, Luke basically is kind of the first half of kind of a, a, a double, kind of a, a, a two-pronged letter, right? Because Luke and Acts were, were written and sent out together. And so when you remember at the very beginning of Luke, just to give you an idea of what his goal is, the very beginning of Luke, Luke tells you why he wrote this letter. He tells you in chapter one that it, he, his, his goals and his motivation for writing this, he said, and as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The reason why these things are recorded the way they are is not just to have uh, another book out there or another letter out there. Luke is wanting to, con to, to encourage the hearts of believers, both in the past and even now, that we can truly trust and believe that Jesus really is who he said he was. And so this passage we're going to read, think about this, because don't listen to this as just, oh, another cool moral way of thinking or yet another cool way of living. Um, according to Jesus, this is really the only way of living. This isn't just one option. It, it's the only option. This, this is it. This is what it means. So let's read through this, and it'll be familiar, but I'm hoping we can dig in to some deeper parts of this, because I really don't want us to miss what, what's being said here. We're going to read uh, Luke chapter 10. Verse 25, the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and uh, departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is, this is, such, this is such an interesting picture because in the very beginning, the, the, the first thing that you notice is the person who's actually asking Jesus the question. Now, if you don't remember the setting here, what's happening, Jesus is teaching. Uh, he's talking to several people that are there. That are so, so many things have already occurred up, up to this point. Jesus has already sent out the 72, sent them out two by two. They've gone out. They've started to share a lot of what Jesus had, had taught them. And, 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 and they returned, and they were kind of reporting what they had seen and the power of God that was on display. And and uh, Jesus is rejoicing, and he's uh, uh, giving them incredible encouragement. And then he gets to this point where he's getting ready to teach them uh, this truth about the kingdom. And then there's a lawyer. We got a few lawyers in here, right? Let the lawyers in the house say amen. Amen. There we go. So we're not about to bash lawyers, but we might bash this one. <laughs> uh, this, this is interesting because this particular lawyer... Number one, it says that he stood up. So you know this, that Jesus was teaching and people were seated while he was teaching. And he stands up to ask a question. And he says the question that uh, hopefully we all ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a very deep question. Every single religious organization seeks to answer this question. Every philosophy seeks to answer this question, either by denying that there is such a thing or by saying how you get there. Everyone attempts to answer this. And so this is a, a huge question. It makes sense to ask it. Uh, and yet this is a lawyer. Now, this lawyer, this was a lawyer who was, who was studied and well-versed in the Jewish law. He had known the first five books of the Pentateuch. He knew God's law in and out. So this was a, a question that he knew the answer to. He was, he was a lawyer. He was well-studied in the law. But he asked Jesus this particular question, and he said, uh, the Scripture says that he put him to the test. So, so what do you think he's doing here? Do you think he's asking Jesus the question to get information from him? Or is he actually asking Jesus the question, not necessarily to get information from him, but to be able to gauge how he couches his argument? You see, one of the things that happens, and you see other people that when they come to test Jesus, it's not that they're like, okay, if he drops some real mad knowledge, this is going to change my world and I'm going to run off with it. That's actually not the approach. It's, I want to justify myself 
And so if I can, if, even if he says a true thing, but the argument isn't strong enough, I'm well-versed in the art of argument, right? I, I don't necessarily, you realize, and I, I think most of our lawyers would agree, there are times where the truth doesn't come forth, but the better arguer wins. Your ability to poke holes in the poorest argument of your opponent is the way that you win these, these legal cases. In a lot of cases, there's so many cases where somebody, people know this person was guilty, but the better lawyer, the better arguer won the case. It doesn't always happen that way. And there are, there are certainly lawyers that actually have incredible integrity with this. But, but in this case, he's putting Jesus to the test because he's looking and he's going, what do I have to do? Because this isn't about... About, about truth. Skilled arguers are not after the truth. They're after arguments that will support their views. See, if I can argue well, my job is to either defend or to prosecute. If I can argue well, then I can find a way to be able to say, you know what, the way that you couch that argument or the truth that you arrived at, you actually got in the wrong way. So I can now make that inadmissible and still win my argument. Well, here, this man is clearly putting Jesus to the test to see how is he going to couch his argument here? How is he going to build uh, his case here? And so he does. And he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, how can I enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you're a lawyer. What's written in the law? Well, how do you read it? How do you understand it? And the man replies, and he says, Basically, what we've seen Jesus say, both in Matthew and in Mark, that's the greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. There you go. You answer it right. Go ahead. Go, go and do likewise. But the man doesn't stop there. Because now he's going, okay, great. Yeah, that's me. I, I'm there. I love God, and I love certain people. Uh, so, so, so help me out here. Who is my neighbor? He's seeking to justify himself. This is how you know his first question was rooted in something that wasn't pure because he's seeking to make himself look better. In other words, he's saying, you know, I don't want to be guilty of this, but I certainly don't really want to have to do whatever work is necessary to be innocent. So what can I do to just actually change this argument so that I can actually be innocent in this case? So, so before you tell me this, I know we agree on this, but help me out and tell me now, okay, who, who is my neighbor though? Who, who are the people that you're talking about? Because if you can tell me the things I want to hear, then I can go, oh, great, I'm good, I'm set, I'm going I'm to keep on moving. And Jesus basically says, uh, when, he, when, when he responds, it's interesting because he, after this man decides to justify himself, you got to think about this. It's got to be a pretty hard charge to hear this if you're this man. It's a strong charge to be told that your holiness and your righteousness is connected to how well you love and take responsibility of other people. Like for most of us, even today, if somebody were to walk up to you today and say, what do I need to do to be able to, to, to be saved? What do I need to do to be able to inherit eternal life? We would give them one half of this. We would say, here's what it means to love God, and here's what it means to, to read the scriptures, and here's what it means to have a prayer life, and here's what it means, all important things. Like you, you, you have to have both here. But we would double down and, um, and over-index this. How many times have you actually, if you were ever sharing your faith and somebody said, what does it mean to, to inherit eternal life? There you go. It's important that you love these things and you love God and you learn about God. It's also very important that you radically neighbor other people. 
That part gets left out so often because we love the pietistic individualism of Christianity. But, but this idea of corporate responsibility for each other, we don't like that. Then it becomes overly political because it sounds so politicized that we get so scared. And so you, you do realize and, and that and in many ways, um, it's almost like, like, I didn't even intend to go here, but I'm going to. It's almost like when you're, imagine getting married and, and there's, you're getting married to someone who has, a, who has a fraternal twin, but the fraternal twin looks close enough like them that somehow you got duped. And so you're married to the wrong twin, right? But the other person knows that they're the one that you meant to be married to. They're the ones that you were, when you were declaring your vows, you were declaring your vows to the right twin, but you're still married to the twin that just ain't quite right. So you're married to this twin, and here's what happens. Over time, the right twin is still saying, hey, I'm the one that you're actually really married. I promise I'm the one that you really married. Here are the things that we agreed to. Here are the vows that you made to me. Here's what ends up happening. You hear that, but you know you've already pledged fidelity to this one, and so the real spouse starts to sound like a potential mistress, and you push them away. This is what happens when our politics take precedence over our Christianity. We're married to the fraternal twin, and the other one is going, no, I'm the one that you married. No, 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 that, that sounds like, I need to shun that. That sounds like something that's, that's trying to steal me away. I can't, I can't hear this. This is what happens here. That's, what, that's, that's where this man is. Married to the, to, to the wrong twin, the fraternal twin, a, a false spouse. And so here, here we have this incredible picture of this, this man who is, who is basically saying, Wait, Jesus, what you're saying right now, it, this doesn't sound like the one that I've been married to. This doesn't sound like what I've married my life to. So, so, so just help me justify myself. Who really is my neighbor? You know the easiest way to absolve yourself from, from caring for other, for other people? is to find a way to cast them as a non-neighbor. The easiest way to not have to care about other people, the easiest way to not feel any responsibility for other people is to just treat them like a non-neighbor. And so this man has clearly lived his life. Here are my neighbors over here. Here are the non-neighbors over there. I rock with these. I don't with those. That's it. And Jesus says, love your neighbor. And just go, wait, 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 wait. I hope you're not trying to call me out of where I am because, because I, I've been good so far. Who is my neighbor? You see, this man is going like what we do. He's rendering people as them and not as us. He's referring to them as you all, not as we. When this man asks Jesus who his neighbor is, he's asking because he wants to justify his misuse of his pronouns. He, he, he basically is saying, I don't, I don't like making these folks like me. I don't want to consider myself among them. So, so tell me now, who is my neighbor? One commentator put it this way, and this is really interesting, the way Jews during that time would have viewed their neighbor. Uh, he, he, he said this, he said, the Pharisees held that the Jews only were to be regarded as neighbors and that the obligation did not extend to all the Gentiles. So their idea of righteousness, what they had been married to, was this idea of, hey, if we're the same ethnically, even if we're the same from a religious perspective, then we're neighbors. Then we live in the same block. Your, 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 your skinship... Your, our religion, that puts us in close proximity to each other. We're the neighbors. Everybody else, not. And now Jesus is getting ready to, to, to break that 
apart. So look, you look at verses 30 through 36, and this is where Jesus, he acknowledges that he sees what's happening in the man's heart. He's seeing this faulty motivation in this man. And so he responds with a parable. <clears throat> parable is, anytime you want to think about a parable, think about the difference between, um, think about the difference between an actual picture and a portrait, right? A portrait is drawn, and, and it's some rendition of what it was real, right? And so there's a portrait. Sometimes when people are drawing the portrait, they may want to accentuate certain things or change some things about the person. Or maybe even sometimes people go even further and draw a caricature. So there are certain aspects that are true. There are some things that might be a little exaggerated. But an actual picture, outside of Photoshop, uh, an actual picture... Can, it actually shows you what really is. And so a parable is more like this, this portrait. This may not be an actual real thing that, that happened. Jesus is telling the story to make a huge, deep theological point. And so he starts to tell the story about uh, these three people that come upon this man. Now let's talk about the man. Verse 30, you see this man has been beaten. He's been robbed. He's been stripped naked. He's left for dead. Almost every commentator agrees this man is very likely Jewish. Why? He's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. That was a very common route for most Jews to be leaving uh, the temple. And so he's, this man is there. I visited that area and actually seen parts of the road to Jericho. It's extremely long. The, it, as the crow flies, to go from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 17, 18 miles. And not only that, but Jerusalem is at a high elevation and Jericho is lower. So you're talking roughly about 3,000 feet down the slope. So traveling down that steep decline, traveling down, it's a brilliant place for robbers to hide. It's very safe for robbers to be. Because most people, they don't want to have to be traveling if they don't have to. So this man has left Jerusalem. He's walking down. He gets jumped. And all of a sudden, he's left for dead. And as he's left for dead, these three men at different times come to see him. The first one is a priest. Scripture says the priest saw him, passed to the other side, and kept on moving. Next, there was a Levite, saw him, passed to the other side of the street, and kept on moving. Now, let's talk about why that is. Why is it that both in Jesus telling this story, why would he give both a priest and a Levite? <clears throat> If you know anything about uh, the role of the Levites in the Old Testament, <clears throat> you notice that uh, the priest uh, had specific re uh, responsibilities in the temple, right? It, if, if you were a priest, first of all, you came from the tribe of Levi, and your job was to take care of all of the, temp uh, the temple responsibilities, the sacrifices. You had to bring the sacrifices into the temple. There were certain requirements of you. You had to be ceremonially pure. Right? There were these ideas of what it meant to be ceremonially pure. And so if, if you were a priest and you were to come up across a dead body, you were not allowed to touch the dead body because the dead body would make you impure. So here this man comes and he's walking and he sees a body. He can't, he's not sure if he's dead or not, but he can look at him and go, uh, he looks dead enough for me not to want to touch him. So he walks to the other side. The Levite does the same. Now, who's the Levite? Again, all priests are Levites, but Levites aren't all priests. Many of your priests, they had their responsibilities, and then all of their helpers or their aides or their uh, associates would be Levites. So the people who were helping in the temple 
also would be coming down. Now, here's the thing. They likely had temple duties. So you had the priests coming from the temple because they had duty at the temple, and several of their associates had similar duties, and so they were coming out. So now you've got these Levites. They don't have the same responsibilities, but they still have this huge requirement of being ceremonially pure. So they're both walking down. Now, what is this a picture of? This is a picture, such a deep picture, of how often we create our own forms of holiness. Anytime you have a form of holiness that tells you, I'm loving God so much, but I'm ignoring my neighbor, is not a, th- a theology God is for. Wow. Any type of theology you have that actually makes you overlook and bypass a neighbor is not a theology that comes from God. But we do this really easily. Well, I don't want to do that because that might make me look a certain kind of way, but that person's in need. Well, yeah, I'm just going to have to pray that somebody else comes along. That's actually not the heart of a neighbor. Because so often what we're doing when we do this is I'm so concerned with looking like or feeling like I'm close to God. The irony in it is I'm going to ignore this person because I want to look like I'm loving God. When God says, you show me your love for me when you look like you're loving this person. Now, this, now you've got the priest, the two religious folk. Like, this is what it is. The, the, the priest is almost like the pastor, and the Levites are like the assistants and the staff and the folks that work in the church. And so think about this. If you're the audience, if you're the man, because you know you're looking at the progression of this parable, and you're going, oh, I know where Jesus is going. Jesus, basically, he's showing us. He's going, all right, priest, Levite, those are the professional believers now he's going to go to the lay Israelites. And then, then, then I can find myself in that story and go, yay me, because I'm a lay guy. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer, but I'm not a priest. I'm not any of those. So Jesus is getting ready to basically kind of give me props and say, well, people like them, them, and people like you. Jesus doesn't do that. He bypasses that logic altogether. Instead, he goes, priest, Levite, and then Samaritan. Now, why would he go to Samaritan? Well, it takes us understanding who the Samaritans were. You see, in in going all the way back to the Old Testament, the Samaritans were people that were always at enmity with the Jews, largely because the Samaritans were treated, they were ethnically mixed, they had uh, Jews and other different people groups throughout history had mixed together, and so they called them Samaritans, the folks that had lived in Samaria going all the way back. And so it started to become a pejorative. If you were a Samaritan, you were one of those dirty, ugly, they would use phrases that were similar to half-breed, I mean, these horrific names that they would use, and that's why you were treated that way. you remember when Jesus met the woman and he started talking to her and she was basically saying, like, "Is is it right for you to even be talking to me? Do I even deserve this? Can I even have the crumbs that come from the table? They were referred to as dogs, right? The Samaritans, not only were the Samaritans ethnically different, The Samaritans were also religiously different. They still followed the law. They still followed the the five books of the the, the Pentateuch. They followed the Torah, but they had some variations in their religious uh, expressions. They had uh, certain things that were hugely uh, uh, far from and, and divergent from the Jews. They also worshiped in a different place. They had believed that uh, Moses gave them instructions to worship in a temple on Mount Gerazim. So they built a temple there. And so there was this massive religious war between Samaritans and Jews because it was like, you guys are cheap counterfeits of us. Your bloodline isn't even right. And your theology isn't even right. 
And we have the privilege, so they've been able to systematically be prejudiced against these folks the whole time. So now Jesus decides to bring up the outcast. Like the two groups of folks that actually should have, out of their love for God, shown mercy to this man, they don't do it, but they have all their holiness together. They've got their religious disciplines together. They can prove to you they love God. They know enough scripture. They can quote enough theology, but they certainly have no mercy. And then Jesus says, now here's the third one. This Samaritan man, this Samaritan man that is likely dealt with uh, being treated all the ways that none of us would want to be treated. And it's interesting to me when, when you think about what the priest and the Levite had been doing, right? They had all about sacrifice, right? I'm all about uh, showing God just how holy I am and praying to him and telling him how holy I am and declaring to him how holy I am and declaring how much I love your word, God, and how much I love the things of, of your ways, God, and yet showing mercy is so beyond them. They seem to forget what God said in Hosea 6. He said, for I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. See, now this, is, this explains why Jesus is showing us this very unlikely character. This despised outcast walks by the Jewish man who is nearly dead. Now, I want, I want you to just try to picture yourself here. Imagine yourself coming upon someone that you have been raised to see as an enemy. Not only you've been raised to see as an enemy, but you've been treated like an enemy. Imagine even, let's just use our imagination here. Imagine that, that uh, this man, this, this, this Samaritan man is coming down, and he recognizes this because maybe he heard some type of epithet yelled at him from this person. Imagine just knowing, like, these are people that we just don't get along with. Danny, imagine a Georgia fan. No, I'm just kidding. I'm looking over there. Imagine. <laughs> Imagine, imagine having someone that has just been your mortal enemy all this time. They've not been for you. They've not been for your people. They've not been for your family. And they have advocated for you to be systematically oppressed. This is the picture that Jesus is using to tell you what a neighbor looks like. And so now the Samaritan man walks up. He sees this, this beaten, quote unquote, enemy on the ground naked within an inch of his life. And it doesn't just end there. What does he do? You see this incredible picture of, of, this, of this man. He, he, the first thing he does, he has compassion. He has mercy. All that is is this undeserved favor. There's nothing that you've done that should elicit this response from me. But all I have is the very mercy shown to me. So I'm going to show you that. This man just shows this enemy compassion. He shows him mercy. And what is the first thing he does? He goes to him and he binds his wounds. He says, I see that there has been injury that has befallen you, and so I'm going to do, use whatever resources I have to, to fix or deal with and repair the immediate damage. So he does. He says, even though you're my enemy, I don't even know. He doesn't even know if the man did anything to get himself there. He doesn't know anything about his background. He doesn't know, well, you know, you didn't make good decisions. You should have known better to be walking at that time of an hour. He didn't victim shame him. He didn't say, well, you ought to know better. You do know this is a dangerous path. How were you raised? What kind of wisdom did you get from your parents? I don't know if my money, my dollars should be going to take care of people who don't make good decisions. I... He doesn't do that, does he? 
He goes straight in and goes, you are in need. You are hurt. You're an image bearer. I'm going to help. So he does. He, he binds up his wounds, number one. Then he uses oil and wine. Now, this idea, when you think back to the Middle East and even the ancient Near East, what they would do, they, they didn't have, uh, as we used to call it in the military, vitamin M, Motrin, and ibuprofen and all that stuff. They didn't have uh, things that could immediately alleviate certain areas of pain. They didn't have that. They didn't have aspirin. They didn't have Tylenol. So if you were injured, the two things that they always used were wine and oil. The wine, the properties within wine and the alcohol would help disinfect certain wounds. And olive oil was something that would just help make the, 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 the wound a little bit more soothed. And so if they were ever going to rub anything or bandage you up, it would be a little bit more soothing to have the, the olive oil applied to your skin. And so immediately he goes, all right, what do I have? Right? This is the stewarding privilege. What do I have on me right now that would actually be hugely helpful for them in the immediate time? This, great, I've got my wine, I've got my oil, let me address this, this immediate issue. So he does. But he does it in there. He takes the Jewish man who is too injured to walk, and he puts him on his own animal, likely his own donkey. Now, we just said this is a, about a, if he's going to Jericho, that's a 17-mile walk. He puts the man up on his donkey, and he walks. Now, what is this? Man, mercy shown to even someone like an enemy means I'm willing, right, to put real skin in the game here. This means that I stand to lose. I will suffer personal loss for the sake of this person who needs help. See, this is more than just, hey, can you give me a shovel? Great. That's no problem. I mean, I don't, it's not too much for me to give you a shovel. But it's like, hey, are you, are you willing to actually put me in your bins and push the car so that I can get where I need to go? That's what he does. Puts him on his animal, showing mercy to the enemy, and begins to walk the animal to an end. Then he gets him to the end. Now, that could have been enough. He could have been like, listen, what else do you want? You people, all you want are handouts. He could have easily said that, even if it was right or wrong. He could have easily done it because, you know, hey, you Samaritans, we don't rock with you Jews, so it's my turn to be able to get you now. I'm in a, I'm in a position of power now. I'm rarely in the position of power as a Samaritan, but now here I am. I can now exert my authority over you because you have no other choice. He could have just been slamming them with stuff. You know, your people are this, your people are that. And you know what? You ought to be just thankful that I'm doing this for you because your people don't deserve this. He doesn't do any of that. He just takes him to an end. And the scripture says he paid two denarii, which uh, would have been two days' wages, two, two days' worth of work. And depending on how they think uh, uh, those rates would have gone for a hotel, it could have been anywhere from one month to a two-month amount of time to stay in an inn. He goes to the innkeeper and he pays him for this man to be there for one to two months. What does that tell you? He, didn't, he could have just stopped and said, look, what else do you want? I've already set you up. You got a Band-Aid on. I gave you a nice ride. You got to sit on my chariot and, and, and you know, you, you were able to kind of uh, be benefited from all of my riches. I've given you a lot more than you deserve. Now, you sit here in this hotel and then you figure out the rest. That's on you. It's not my responsibility. I'm not your dad. I'm not your mom. You know, clearly if your people were so great, they would have helped you, but they didn't. So, but he didn't do any of that. He then goes to the innkeeper. He not only pays because he says, I not only care about his immediate situation, I care about his actual recovery and restoration. That's what it means to be a neighbor? Actually, more than just, hey, what do you need? I gave you something for now. 
No, he actually says, I care not only about the immediate need, I care about this idea that you can be restored, that your human dignity is restored, that you have the ability to subsist on your own. I actually care about that for you. So I'm not just going to leave you for the day. I'm going to pay and make sure that you're there for one to two months. And then I'm going to tell the innkeeper, hey, if he needs anything, pay for it. I will pay you back when I come back. Think, think, just think about that. Put your enemy in this place. Jesus is using this picture to give us the idea, this idea of what it means to be a neighbor. Take the per- Jesus says, take your worst enemy. Imagine them being hurt. Go to them. Start to heal their wounds. Start to help them see a process of restoration. It's going to cost you something, but this is what it means to love people the way I love. So he sends this man in this hotel. He leaves him there. What's interesting about this is to Jesus... Being a neighbor is more than just picking up dog droppings. Being a neighbor is, according to Jesus, is so much more deep than this. So Jesus changes the question for this, for this man, right? Because the, man, the, question, the question the man asked was, who is my neighbor? Who, who are these people that I'm supposed to care for? And the question isn't, who is my neighbor? That's basically another way of asking, uh, toward whom can I ignore being a neighbor? Who am I allowed to ignore? As long as I know that, then I know that I'm doing well, because I'm definitely caring for the right number of people, the right group. Now, the question really is this, and this should be the question for all of us. To whom am I a neighbor? Who, who, who am I neighboring? Who should I be neighboring? Jesus says, not only those in close proximity, but anyone with whom you come into contact is your neighbor. Think about that. I mean, these, it's pretty obvious a Samaritan and this Jewish guy, they didn't live on the same block. They, they, didn't li- they likely didn't live around each other. And yet this person, this stranger, this enemy, is now a neighbor. And then Jesus says when you love the neighbor, you're supposed to love the neighbor like yourself. And so the only ways, the only kind of people you do that with are family. So he says, take your foe. Don't just make him your friend but actually make them family. Care about them the way you would care about your family. That's what we're called to do as neighbors. And so, and so this man is there, and he's, he's being taken care of, and Jesus has just dropped this massive bomb. Not just friends, not just family, but even the foes, even the people that you don't get along with. Those are the ones that you neighbor. That's everybody. That's everybody. You can't really, I mean, honestly, you can't find a a person to find a loophole and go, I found one that doesn't fit into that description. Any any place where God's people are, we are required to be a radical neighbor. Anywhere where the people of God are, we are required to be a radical neighbor. So here's, here's the, if anything, the picture that you see of this man, of the Samaritan, is a picture of a person presenting themselves as insurance. Think about it. What's, what's insurance there for? In the event that you're not able to cover or take care of certain damages, the insurance company does, in theory. In the event that you're not able to cover certain things and take care of certain things, whether it's health, whether it's vehicle, whether it's home, you know, if, if a horrible uh, a storm comes or flooding happens and in the event that you can't afford to take care of uh, the damages there, you pay so that insurance will cover it, right? The idea behind insurance is that if you don't have the funds to take care of a thing, it will be taken care of for you. 
You see, what this man does for, this, for, the, for the Jewish man, what the Samaritan does, is he gives himself as actual insurance for this man. He doesn't say, hey, listen, um, it's not my job to be your insurance. It's not my job to actually do this for you. Um, sorry, I can't. No, anywhere where God's people are, we're called to radically neighbor. We're called to be insurance for these folks. And if you don't understand that, if we don't get it, one of the main reasons why we don't get it, and this is why it's interesting that Jesus says, once he, once he asks, once he asks, you think about it, once he asks the man, so based on the story I just gave you, which one is the one that's the neighbor? And he said, oh, the one that showed mercy. He's the one that's the neighbor. And he said, go and do likewise. Now, that might sound really, really easy, but the truth of the matter is that it's not easy. But I will say this. I have to say this for even for myself. You, you cannot radically neighbor if you've never been radically neighbored. You see, you can't just fake that. If you've not, and here's the other thing, you can't radically neighbor if you've never seen yourself as in need of radical neighboring. If you don't ever see, if you see yourself as just above that, I've never really needed that, then you might have a really faulty view of the gospel because Jesus radically neighbors you. You see, if you think about the idea that I was born estranged from God, I was born with this deep-seated rebellion in my heart that I can't fix on my own. I was born lying on the side of the road near dead. And Jesus came and radically neighbored me. Jesus came and radically made me aware of some things and allowed me to be able to see how desperately in need of help I was. And then he didn't just say that. He didn't just make me aware. Hey, by the way, you really messed up. Bye. He didn't do that. He says, I'm going to not only show you the need you have for me, but I'm going to come and I'm going to bind those wounds up. I'm going to come. I've got the oil and the wine to be able to soothe the pain that you have. I actually am not only going to do that. I'm going to take you. I'm going to set you up. I'm going to make the walk to Calvary. You don't have to do that. I'm going to carry the cross. You don't have to do that. I'm going to suffer the wounds. You don't have to do that. I'm going to give my life. You don't have to do that. If you can't, radically, if you can't wrap yourself, your head, around radically neighboring, I have to ask you, have you been radically neighbored by Jesus? See, there is no faking this, because eventually, this is hard in and of itself, eventually, we'll just wear out. I can't keep doing this on my own. I can't keep trying to act like I'm just great for everybody, and I'm trying to care for everybody. It's wearing me thin, and so my motivation will run out eventually. But if my motivation is in how radically neighbored I continually am by God, then I'm able to go in. So here's the deal. When I think about uh, insurance and I think about who Jesus is, ultimately, I think about the two best slogans that I've heard from insurance companies, right? You think about uh, one, uh, you, you, what is it? Uh, State Farm. What State Farms? Like a good, people are already singing. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And you think about Allstate. What's Allstate's? You're in good, y'all know y'all's insurance. You're in good hands. And then what's the question he asked? Dennis Haysburg normally asks you, what does he ask you? Are you in good hands? Here's, here's, the, here's the point of this. Anywhere where God's people are, friends, families, foes should say, regardless of the nature of my relationship with this person, when I'm around them, I'm in good hands. When I'm around this person, they may not, we may not be able to stand each other. If I'm at work and there's a person I just can't stand, 
I still know that when I'm around them, if there's ever any major issue, any major need that I have, I know that I'm in good hands. I know that uh, anytime I'm sitting at, in my neighborhood and there's issues and my prayer is, and I hope this is something we all want to be, we want to be in a place where no matter where I live, apartment complex, home, cul-de-sac, whatever, anywhere that I am, the prayer is, Lord, let people feel like that they're in good hands because we're here. Let people feel like if those people, this is the reason why throughout the scriptures and throughout our series, we've been talking about what, what, what Jesus and what God has been showing us, that our, our goal, our job is to steward our privilege for the least of these, right? So we looked at some of those unprotected people groups, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the fact that we are called to steward our lives as a good neighbor for these people, for any of these people, for any of us. If there's a need, then I want people to feel like, you know what, I, I'm around this person, and I've been around them for a while, and even if we don't always agree on a lot of things, I know that I'm in good hands if I have any needs. Now, last thing I'll say, because I think this, this, brings, uh, this brings up one big question that often comes up in this conversation, and that is, <clears throat> well, listen, Daryl, I hear you. Like, I'm all about loving the neighbor. I'm all about loving God and loving the neighbor. And what better way to love the neighbor than to just share the gospel? What better way? I've known people that have just been like, you know what, I don't really, you know, I can't really do all that stuff. But what I can do is I'll make sure that I'll talk to them, make sure that I share uh, the gospel, quote unquote, with them. And so even if they don't have those, those other things, even if I could have helped them, at the end of the day, even if they die, at least they'll be in heaven. Now that sounds odd. Yet that actually was the logic of most Christians when it came to slavery. It was the logic of most Christians when it came to uh, some of the most horrific things both in Europe and here. Hey, this is horrible that's happening to them, but at the end of the day, at least they end up becoming Christians out of it. You realize that when, you, when your goal, please get this, when you're loving people and you're neighboring people, is purely evangelistic. Evangelism doesn't look like mercy or grace. It looks like recruiting. People see that, and they're like, oh, wait, oh, you're only doing that to recruit? Oh, you're only doing that to, to get me to go to your church? Oh, you're only doing that to get me to adopt this theological position? You know what doesn't happen in this situation? The Samaritan, who has a different theological purview, does not go, hey, I'm going to make sure I do this, but when I come back, we got some catechism to do. Doesn't do that. Doesn't even come up. We add that in there. Now, that doesn't mean that we should not care about being able to share our faith and be able to explain why we believe what we believe. But the goal is not evangelism here. The goal is the image of God on display. That's it. That's the goal. So we feel good about ourselves when we don't help people in the corporeal needs that they have because we're like, you know what, I didn't do that, but they got the gospel, though. Got them. See, ultimately, loving the neighbor it's supposed to be restorative, not about recruitment. Loving the neighbor is actually supposed to be about I'm giving and stewarding myself in such a way for those who don't have the privileges at this point. I don't care how they got there. I don't care why. Yes, we use wisdom. Yes, we want to be able to help people build and, and be able to do things in a wise way. But at the end of the day, the question is, do I really believe in this idea of radical neighboring? You guys know Tuesday. We're celebrating a special day, right? What are we celebrating? Ooh. 
<laughs> well done. Bow dances are right, yes. Halloween. <laughs> Halloween. And then, and then like the, the, the Bible teacher's pets yelled out the other answer that they knew I was looking for. It's also Reformation Day, right? <laughs> and, and I did that on purpose, so sweetie, you didn't mess up. That was a good answer right there. That was a good answer. Tuesday, we celebrate Halloween. Well, coincidentally, Halloween is also October 31st is, is the day that we celebrate the Protestant Reformation. This will be the quintessential, the 500th anniversary of that day when Martin Luther nailed uh, a list of his uh, issues with the church uh, during that time. And so these are all issues that are horrible, that are wrong, that are unbiblical, all these things that sparked the Protestant Reformation, and we love it, and it's awesome. And if you've ever been in any type of Protestant environment, this is something that we celebrate all the time. We are in a church like this right now because of the Protestant Reformation, and there were some good things that came out of it. And so Martin Luther, this Catholic monk who had seen these horrific things that were happening within the Catholic church, began to call those things out, and it caused this schism. Looking back, he wasn't even trying to cause a schism at first. He was trying to reform from within. They would not. They split off, and there was all these different things that happened. So this is a time of year where we begin to wax eloquent about these amazing reformers of the faith and all the wonderful legacies that they left for us, and we're so thankful for that. And all that's true, except one thing, one of the many things about Martin Luther was that in the beginning, Martin Luther had a huge view of treating Jews well because in his mind, he thought the Jewish people won't convert to Christianity because of how awfully we've treated them. But if we begin to treat them lovingly and treat them better, then they will convert. Why? Because what was moving the needle for him? Evangelism. It wasn't neighboring. It was evangelism. How can I get as many people saved as possible? That must be it. Was it neighboring? How do we know that? Because after a period of time, they were treating Jews wonderfully and treating them much better, and they were not converting. And Martin Luther got mad. He said, no, 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 this can't be God's will. This can't be it, because my Bible says, <laughs> and he began to take a completely different approach. And he ended up writing a book that you rarely hear about, especially in our circles, because as is often the case, regardless of what circle you're in, uh, it, who, whoever has the mic, they get to control the history, right? So, so we don't really talk about this, but there was a book that was written by Martin Luther, one of the last books he ever wrote, and it was called On the Jews and Their Lies. And in this book, he began to wax eloquently about all the horrific things about those that are a part of the Jewish faith, those Jews that live in Germany, and he said a few things like this. The first thing we need to do is to set fire to their synagogues or schools. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom, so that God might see that we are Christians. Second, I advise that their houses be razed and destroyed. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings, that's kind of the, the, the Jewish uh, commentaries for, for the Torah, their Talmudic writings in which such idolatry lies, cursing and blasphemy are taught, be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews, for they have no business in the countryside. Sixth, I advise that usury be pro prohibited to them and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them. And finally, seventh, I recommend that putting a flail, an axe, a hoe, a spade, a distaff, or a spindle into the hands of young, strong Jews and Jewesses and let them earn their bread in the sweat of their brow. But if we are afraid that they might harm us or our wives, our children, servants, cattle, then let us emulate the common sense of other nations such as France, Spain, Bohemia, and eject them forever from the country. 
Now, Adolf Hitler actually read this, and this was one of the most encouraging books for him. And he actually quoted from it often because this helped motivate a horribly anti-Semitic view uh, of, of fellow image bearers. Why am I bringing this up? Well, A, number one, the first thing is this. Like anything else, aren't you glad that our example of a neighbor is not Martin Luther? Our example of a, na- of a neighbor is not John Calvin, it's not John Wesley, it's not Jonathan Edwards, it's not uh, George Whitfield, it's not T.D. Jakes, it's not any of the people that anybody might have to happen to respect. That's not the example. So anywhere where those folks follow Jesus, amen, I'm rocking with you. Any place where you're off and you're blaspheming the image of God, then I'm actually saying I rebuke that. I, you need to repent from that. That is wrong. It's awful. It's not the blood of Jesus there. And so when you think about this, think about what motivated someone like Martin Luther to write that. What motivated was the goal that says, above all else, evangelism is what matters. That just becomes a convenient cop-out from loving people. Does not mean that we don't evangelize. We should, and we should be prepared to. But what moves the needle is actually protecting and loving image bearers. That's what moves the needle. And Jesus says that when you love God and you love people that way, then you inherit the kingdom of God. That's actually what it means to enter in. Do you see how dangerous it can be when we mix this? Do you know how many horrible things have happened because people said, well, <clears throat> at, least, at least people came to Christ out of it. You could do some horrible things and still by God's grace, people will still know who Jesus is. And the fact of the matter is they will know Jesus and you will be in need of repentance. They will know Jesus, and you possibly will not. You see, at the end of the day, you need to ask yourself, whatever motivation I have right now, does it look like that these folks, can these Jewish people say to Martin Luther, if we're around Luther, we're in good hands? If I'm around those folks in that Protestant Reformation, I'm going to be in good hands. Can people say that in our neighborhoods? Can people say that in our cities? Can people say that in our country? Can people say that in our churches? When people, there are people that are suffering, that are hurting systemically, and they, when they hear the church, they don't hear us sounding like we genuinely care about your well-being and we genuinely want to care for you. We want you to feel like you find insurance in us. They don't. More often than not, they feel like we're, we're giving them a stiff arm and saying, be gone because you are not a part of us. The last thing that that jumps out when you think about what Jesus said. You think about what Paul, how Paul used Jesus' words. He says this, and this is, end of the day, the last thing we need to understand is the first thing we need to understand. We've said it before. The only way for me to understand radical neighboring is to be radically neighbored. Here's how radical you've been neighbored by Jesus. Listen to this. This is how radical you've been. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's dead. 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 There's nothing. When you're dead, you can't do anything to save yourself. Nothing. You're done. There's no movement. There's no, you can't even, you're so dead that you don't even know the damage that's happening to your body now because you're dead. And you were dead in the trespasses of your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, is that neighboring? But God... 
being rich in mercy, meaning I'm going to give you something you don't deserve. You were dead and I resuscitated you. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, we always end there. The last thing he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. What are those good works? Radical neighboring. You were radically neighbor to radically neighbor, period. That's what it means to steward privilege. Every single sermon we've done over the last six weeks has been about what does it mean to steward what I have to radically neighbor? So before we start with, well, wait a minute, my theological position says this. Is it getting in the way of you radically neighboring? Because you need to go revisit it. Because you're likely not displaying the heart of God. And isn't it so amazing that even in the ways that we fail, all we, get, all we have to do when we come back to repent and we start to see these broken areas in our own lives, all we do is we go, Lord, show me again how I've been radically neighbored by you. This very day. Move upon my heart. Break me in the ways I need to be broken. Convict me in the ways I need to be convicted so that I can see, man, I've been actually functioning as if I had a little bit to do with neighboring myself, and I didn't. I didn't neighbor myself into this. I needed to be neighbored into this. And the more I move by that, yes, I'll be broken. Yes, I'll feel convicted. Yes, I'll feel ashamed for all the ways that I failed here, but I can also find great comfort and great joy in the fact that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive me even in the ways I don't neighbor well so that I can actually be remade to begin neighboring correctly again. This is the gospel, y'all. This is actually what it means to trust Jesus. Beyond just our wonderful theological uh, viewpoints, beyond all of our wonderful disciplines that we have in place, this is what it means to love Jesus, this is what it means to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Do y'all want a neighbor like this? Do you see yourself as being neighbored like this? My prayer is that everyone here, before you ask the question, am I a neighbor this way? Ask the question, have I been neighbored in this way? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for, the, for seeing us first as in need of your grace and in need of your mercy God, I pray that you would move upon our hearts and show us all the ways that we still need you, all the ways that we still need to be radically neighbored. I'm so thankful that even as we look throughout the scriptures and we see how you grow your people, this idea of being sanctified progressively throughout our lives, and we think about what you do to, to reshape us and to remold us and to remake us and to keep changing us to look like you. God, ultimately, that's just you continually, radically neighboring us. God, show us, show us, show me, show the ways that we don't neighbor well. Show us the ways that we're not impacted by your neighboring of us. God, I pray this very day that we would be moved to think in some new ways of how have we been avoiding being that kind of a neighbor? God, how do we view people that we come in contact with Lord, let this week be a week where before we begin to look at them as them, 
that you move upon our hearts and we see them as us, that we love them like we love ourselves, that we care for them like we care for ourselves. And let it not be rooted in how good we are and how godly we are and how we can brag about the things that we do. Let it be rooted in who you are. God, we say this, I pray this is true, that everything we're doing, we really want to do for your glory. We don't want the glory on our own. We don't want this. We don't want to uh, see our names in lights. We don't want to see books written about us. God, we pray, I pray, that this would be uh, firmly entrenched in this idea that you have created us to look like you so that when people see us, they see you. When people see our community, they see you. When our neighbors see us, they see you. When our coworkers see us, they see you. When our family sees us, they see you. God, it is all about you. It's not about us. God, when you make this true in our hearts, continue to work on us, continue to neighbor us. Thank you for never moving away. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we come, as we come to the table, this common table, this idea of communion, let this be on your mind. Let this be on your heart. Let this be something that you're thinking through before we come and partake because Ultimately, every time we do this, we are proclaiming we have been radically neighbored. We're proclaiming that this heart of repentance that we come to this table with, we're repenting over and over again for, Lord, I can see all the ways I'm not being the neighbor you created me to be. So, so there's a combination of both mourning and rejoicing every time we come here, and it's to God's glory that we have both. So often we come to church to either get the mourning or to get the rejoicing. And today's culture is more the rejoicing. We, we want reasons to be able to shout and have, and we need that and that's important, but we need both in concert because we actually need to be rejoicing in all the ways that God is continually remaking us and be broken over all the ways that we still aren't there. And so if this is true of your heart, that you can honestly say, A, I know that I've been radically neighbored. It's the only reason why I have any standing before a holy God. It's not because I did whatever I did, which also means that all the things you may have done in your past that gives you great shame, that doesn't disqualify you from being in the family of God. That doesn't disqualify you from actually being in the kingdom of God. What what actually qualifies us is our acknowledgement of our disqualification. I realize that I don't deserve this. I realize that it's been nothing but mercy that you've shown me because you've radically neighbored me. If this is true of your heart, if this is true of where you are, then this table is for you. This is not for any of us who think, I was actually good before all of this. I'm going to be good after this. God wouldn't want you to come and do that. He doesn't even want you to come and and proclaim something that isn't true because he wants a legitimate, authentic relationship with you. If this is true of your heart, this table is yours. The Apostle Paul reminds us to examine ourselves, to make sure this is true of our hearts. Why? Because this is a very big deal, y'all. This, this isn't just a, a nice rudimentary kind of thing that we do. This isn't uh, a typical kind of pattern. Well, every Sunday we just have to do this because that's just what you do. We do this because you realize this may be the only time in the week that we get to reflect on, Lord, where does my heart not look like yours? You know how hard it is in today's fast-paced world to actually get time to just stop and reflect on anything? good or bad. You know how hard it is to just stop and reflect. And God gives us communion to stop and reflect and repent and be restored. 
this is true, then this table is for you. As our volunteers come, we just like to remind you that we do uh, communion by the process of intinction. So that means as you'll come down the middle aisle, you get a piece of gluten-free bread and you'll dip it in either the wine or juice as you see fit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he stood up at the table and they were partaking of the Passover meal. He blessed the food and he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body that's given for you. Take and eat of it. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood, the blood of a new covenant poured out for the remission of sins. Take and drink of it. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When people ask, why do we do this every Sunday? We do this because ultimately there is no better news than the ways in which we are continually being radically neighbored. This is it. We're saying that we've been radically neighbored and the ultimate, this, the great high priest, the great neighbor is coming to make everything perfect again. That's our greatest hope. Greatest hope is not our ability to neighbor the world into something great. That's not, that's not our greatest hope. The greatest hope is in small ways, the ways that we neighbor gives a foreshadowing of the greatest neighbor that's going to come and make all things new, make all things right. This is our hope. This is our joy. So as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim the great neighbor. If this is true for you, this is where your heart is, then come taste and see and be reminded that the Lord, our neighbor, is indeed good. Let's eat together. And we'll start in the back.